Welcome everybody, it is that time again, the Steve Austin Broken Skull Sessions here on Tap Out Talk. Let's get in. It's that time, and when you hear the glass, you know it's that time for the Broken Skull Sessions here on Tap Out Talk. And this today's episode, remember, diamonds are forever, and so is, you guessed it, Ric Flair. And so I'd like to go ahead and start in with that, keeping in mind that we will be dealing with Ric Flair, Episode 6. Can I get a ooh as we start in? So you guys know the deal here in the opening. This is the podcast of the podcast. If you don't want to watch the whole show, you come here and you watch the podcast. And I give you all the highlights and delights and the breakdowns. And then you can make that decision if you want to invest one to two hours of watching the actual Broken Skull Sessions on WWE Network. So with that being said, let's get into our opening. We start out with Flair and Austin toasting to start out. And he says that Flair says that he's been drinking in moderation now. Um, it's a word he's learning to use. Austin starts with how Flair is feeling. Flair says he feels great and that it'll be three years since August, since his, uh, all of his issues. And he's been able to regain memory and he had four heart surgeries in over seven weeks in the span of 2019. And he felt great ever since then. Um, Austin shows a picture of them from a few years ago. He brings up that he and his peers um, all considered Flair the greatest of all time or the GOAT. Right, and they'll get into that a little bit later on. They talk about the lifestyle of Ric Flair, that styling and profiling, and that Steve's generation, um, and how they know they probably you know would today. And then Rick says he hated to go home because he knew that on the road for 30 days, you know, when he'd get home only for one day, and he would barely get a day in time. So sometimes he would just go right to the next town because it was almost just as easy rather than getting into fights at home about why he was only home for a little bit of time. From there, we go into a little bit of the lifestyle of the nature boy. He talked about his wife, Wendy, and that she likes to go out as well. So that was a plus for him when he got married later here in life with her. Um, he does say that he wishes that he had toned it down a bit when he was in younger years with his kids. Um, the only time that he had with them was when Bischoff sent him home and WCW went out of business. And you could tell Rick was living with a lot of regret here during this phase. But those were his best times, and he loves being around Wendy and the kids now. Let's move ahead. We get into the clothing because the clothes make the man. You guys have heard that saying before over and over, time after time. Austin brings up that he learned that Flair bought all his clothes that he would wear. They cut to a promo in 1986 where Flair talks about his clothes costing $1,500. He plugs getting them from a place in Kansas City. He modeled himself after Buddy Rogers, and Flair was blown away when he met him. Buddy told him there was only one diamond in the wrestling industry, and it was him. And then he shook his hand. Flair thought it was the coolest thing ever to be able to actually have Buddy Rogers say that to him. He says he learned to dress well from his dad. Um, his dad was a doctor, and he learned to dress professionally from his dad, which he did carry into the world of wrestling. Speaking of legends that Flair admires, 
put Johnny Valentine on that list. They talked about Johnny Valentine and how he didn't like the Irish whip because it wasn't unbelievable. Valentine was his first partner, and Wahoo um, would beat the tar out of him, and he would flop down. Um, that is where the flare flop got its invention. He continued to do it because the fans liked it so much. Austin then brings up that he heard Ole Anderson hated it, and that Flair says Ole also hated the flip in the corner. So, which we get a little bit into the flare flop flip in the corner, right? The flare 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 flop flip in the corner. We have fun with that one. Um, Austin asks Vince, you know, he asks him, he says, what did Vince think of this flare flop? And he says he loved it. He didn't like the slam off the top rope, though. But Flair says it was because Ross would point out his age. And then he would also, Lawler, uh, Jerry Lawler would bring up that it never actually worked, which kind of just, it's like, spoiled it, right? He mentions his match with Shawn Michaels at Mania and how they switched places in that match. And it was uh, him getting the one, um, Shawn Michaels' one getting slammed off the top. So that was like a nice little nod to Flair in his retirement match that we didn't know about. We talk about Flair's celebrities and Flair's celebrity status. Austin wants to know if Flair knew back then the impact he was making. Uh, he actually brings up how Flair is respected by rappers and athletes all alike. They have a little conversation here. James, uh, LeBron James actually, he plugs that LeBron James, he's going to be seeing him to the following night after this podcast. And we get footage of him introducing the Lakers on their home game um, in the following night uh, as far as before. LeBron is one that uh, gave Flair the moniker, the founder of swag. And LeBron told him that uh, – a Rolex watch kept him out of trouble and inspired him. So, you know, Ric Flair inspired LeBron James with that styling and profile and mentality. We get into the Flair speech after this. And what that means is Austin asks Flair, what is his go-to speech when he speaks to athletes? He tells them, and we find out that he tells them that they're all on the same playing field. Okay, they're all on equal ground out there on the field. And you know when you are better than somebody, you want to go out there and you want to be the very best you can. If you don't want to be that person, then it is time to quit. Flair talks about seeing Austin pacing in the prime in his prime and backstage, waiting for his music to hit. Flair knew he had to be the man, and he knew what he was following when the match before him was Sting, Tully, Iron, and the Road Warriors. The talk morphs into getting color, and a little bit of uh, getting color in the industry is like when you start bleeding, right? So Flair says that he was given the okay to do it whenever he felt like it in his career. Um, the only time they were really given an order was during War Games matches, and Austin mentions that uh, <clears throat> that he was game for it as well during his years, but he said Flair made it look way better, and I agree. Flair's long platinum blonde hair, and it got all stained red. I actually have a autographed Ric Flair photo hanging on my wall of that very bloody Flair style, so it's one of my favorites. We then go into a little bit of goat talk, and nay, we are not going to talk about that kind of goat, but the greatest of all time. Austin calls Flair the greatest of all time, and he wants to know who Flair holds in the high regard, and Flair says that what is wrong with the business today is the word great is passed around all way too much. And he says he calls Austin the biggest box office of all time. So that's what Stone Cold is. Flair then plugs him for being a great worker. He then puts Hawk Hogan over um, as you know, his second, as his strong number two. And he says as far as drawing money, 
And even though he wasn't a great worker, he knew how to draw money. So he says even Hogan would admit that he wasn't a great worker. Then Flair puts Taker at number three, The Undertaker. And then he says after that, you can put Ric Flair, Shawn Michaels, and Triple H wherever you want, kind of mix and match, right? He gets back on people using the word great too much after this. And he says that Race, Harley Race and Terry Funk were great workers, but they didn't get the recognition because of the time they worked. Um, Flair says he was relevant at 70 because of what he did in the 80s, which I do 100% agree. And, I mean, that's greatness over how many generations, right? He started in the 70s, and then he went on in his career all the way through the modern era. So that's definitely, you know, a lot of years on the road. We started talking about different opponents at this point in the program. We started talking about Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Um, Austin mentions that people were great workers and draws, but some of them were those who fit into both categories. And Flair puts over the matches Austin had with Steamboat, and he says that he thinks that, you know, that's when he ultimately worked the best. I remember these were a series of matches, almost an hour long each. Uh, the Shy Tower Rumble really comes to mind. And yeah, this is definitely, you know, these two had not a lot of flips and kicks, but they definitely had a lot of mats and bumps. We then get into the Crockett Promotions era for Flair. Flair picks the 80s as Crockett as the best period of his life. He knows he stunk up the joint in his first run in the NWA. Ugh. And then he didn't get to work all these guys that came up you know, with him. And he got stuck with guys he didn't know from Kansas City and Florida. Uh, things were fine in the Carolinas, Puerto Rico, and Japan for Flair. And he felt like he became you know, world class at that point with all the traveling. And he was ready to take on the world when he won the title for the second time against Harley Race at Starcade 1983. Um, they talked about learning to work as a champion. And Austin brings up winning the TV title for the first time on Bobby Eaton. Flair admits that he is more than a 16-time world champion and then wants to talk about Bobby Eaton a little bit. He talks about how amazing he is and what a great worker he is. And not many people are aware of you know, Bobby Eaton in that sense. Austin agrees, and they both put him over. They're not lying there. Uh, Bobby Eaton, um, this is twice now on the Stone Cold Podcast that Bobby Eaton was you know, given a lot of praise. Remember, Goldberg originally wanted to give the streak to Bobby Eaton, Bobby Eaton excuse me, at the end of uh, his run, and he mentioned that on the Stone Cold Sessions. So um, from there, they transitioned into some match comparison. And with that, they have um, a couple comparisons here with Starcade matches. So Austin goes to Starcade 83 versus Harley Race. And then they go into Starcade 93 10 years later against Big Van Vader. Flair will always pick winning the title from Harley as the best match, right? He brings up a well-known story that was supposed to be Sid versus Vader, but then they got into a fight with Iron. And then... Um, and then both were suspended over that scissor incident, right? So the show was then in Charlotte, Flair's you know home state. And so they went to Flair, and he was game for it. He says Vader didn't want to lose the title. And he, and he says that Vader could be a bit of a bully, but he was fine with him. And he admits that he had to fight in that match. And it bring, he also brings up the fact of who managed Vader in that match was none other than Harley Race. Um, so that does give it that kind of flair after 10 years, right? That little revenge match. Um, since Race couldn't beat him, he went and got Big Van Vader. So Flair told was told during the match that he was embarrassing him. And that fired Flair up. And then he fought back against Vader 
Austin jumps on that, and Flair says, well, hold on a second. It meant that he hadn't lit up Vader, right? And he said, exactly. He said, they show a shot where you can see on the show, they actually show the shot in the match where they can see Race yell something at Flair, and then they start laying into each other on the floor. And then Race is asked um, him what he was doing, and Flair admitted that he was losing himself a bit. So, you know, him and Harley, you know, they definitely go way back. And um, you know, they talk a little more about, like, the matches overall. And, you know, that it was that main Starcade match that really got it going for Flair. And, of course, he won his world title during that face. Um, speaking of face, you know, the question got, in the next segment here, the question got brought up if Flair prefers to work as a heel or as a face. And so what we got was Flair says he loved being a heel and he hated being a face. Okay. Um, he laughs with a smile and he said, you know, faces have limited move sets, right? And he said, you know, sometimes you know, he said himself he has a limited move set, and it's hard to be a face when you have a limited move set because you can do so much to try to win the crowd over. Um, they talk about how the chops, and Flair says that Taker and Bret Hart both hated taking the chops, you know, the Ric Flair chest chops with the woos. And Undertaker would then tell him before the match that he only got to use three of them. Flair says that he saw that Bret made a comment. Um, that if Flair chopped him again, he would punch him in the face. So Flair assures us that the conversations, you know, never happened. And then jokes on the chop and his whole and how that's his whole defense, right? He goes over, you know, that in his offense is a, basically a chop and a knee drop. So the chop and drop is really the basis of Ric Flair. And the guys he worked with before who had problems couldn't blame him as they didn't take big bumps either. So speaking of Flair's other moves other than chops and knee drops, we get into the figure four leg lock. One of the most iconic, you know, moves because of Ric Flair for submissions, right? And Austin asked about the figure four and Flair says, you know, he got it actually studying from Jack Briscoe. And he brings up Kevin Owens and he kind of calls, you know, how he's calling Steve Austin about using the stunner. Flair put Owens over as a great kid who could really work and Austin nodded in agreements. Flair then goes on and says, you know, everyone is using a super kick now. And you can't, you know, have 500 moves, moonsaults and super kits in every single match. So he wants to, you know, tell the kids to start doing less and less is more. That's what he wants to tell these younger generations, if he could say anything. Um, Austin says that The Undertaker and Big Show both said the same thing when they were on the show, you know, in the prior. And that's correct in these last interviews. Um, Flair says that, you know, kids today have a limited opportunity to work with other people and he would work with people from Brody to Sean, to Kali, to Steamboat, to Andre, you know, all the way to Triple H. So he just kind of talks about the invention, the move, and then he kind of gets into, you know, his other opponents, um, Andre being the next one. So when the topic of Andre came up, you know, he did briefly mention that he had three singles matches with Andre. He didn't know what to do with him, and Andre just told him, you know, that they would just take it easy. Austin asked if he learned anything from Andre, and Flair said, honestly, no, not too much, but he said when Andre, you know, before he was driving, um, he was always driving with Tim White, and so he didn't really get a chance to know Andre too well other than the three matches together, and, you know, Andre has a history of just punishing you in the ring. Uh, he tells a funny story about Andre having people hit the bar with him, and if he would see 
you know, that he would see like flaring them in. And then, of course, in the airport and who really else knows. But Andre would just kind of be kind of a character as far as in the bars and the drinking. Maybe that's where Ric Flair got to start drinking. Who knows? We also get into the art of wrestling and moves and we get into working crowds. Okay. And Austin, he moves on to Hogan and says, you know, he is one of the best ever at reading a crowd. And Rick would absolutely agree. Hawk Hogan knew how to read a crowd and knew how to fire up at the exact right times. And, you know, Hawk up as we know it as fans, right? Um, he would also sell for anyone. Um, and he knew how to get the audience to respond. Austin says that Hogan could work, but was a big guy who worked a big guy typical style, right? Where Austin also appreciated the way Flair could work. And he would also work a crowd as well. And he knew that when it was time to manipulate the crowd and when it was time to, you know, kind of control them overall. Flair says that you don't know the action until you go out there and you just do it. And every crowd is different. Flair doesn't know, you know, Flair said he doesn't know why you would ever cut someone off like Austin Steamboat or Hogan or Morton or Von, Kerry Von Erich even. Uh, when they're blowing the roof off the building, you just let that man go out there and work. And they'll tell you when they're done because they're so good at what they do and knowing they're so in tune with the crowd. Um, he feels the need to let them blow the roof off and then they can bring it down once they sense they're good. So he got into it once with Ole Anderson who kept yelling at him to cut off the road warriors and dusty, but flair felt the fans wanted to see him run wild. Um, they would then get, you know, about five more minutes. And then Austin, you know, said he, sometimes you would just lay on the mat selling and then kind of bringing the pace down. But even then, if it was 35 stomps, he would still do it. So they get a back and forth about how to work a crowd here. And I think that's a definitely a dying art. Um, with the days of uh, COVID and stuff, I think when the crowds went away, that did teach these superstars not how to work a crowd for a while. And I think that's such an important element, right, in today's era. We then go a little bit further in the conversation. And... Uh, we talk back, we jump around a lot here in this interview, but um, it does go back and forth. Flair goes one way and Austin goes another. But at the end of the day, Austin goes back to their WCW days and um, he says he modeled his career after Flair and he was told that he was going to be the next Ric Flair when he was with the Hollywood Blondes. Austin was the sixth man with Flair and Sting and he watched them work and he knew that he had a long way to go. Flair says he always worked with Sting and and told Austin back then that he still had time. You still got lots of time, kid, and you know, you're know you going to get this. Austin from here then will shift to 1992 Royal Rumble, and they talk while Flair makes his entrance at number three on the monitor, right? And so they show the Rumble while the guys are kind of drinking and talking about it, and he says he was out there with DiBiase the previous night, um, and they were hanging out, and he said the star power in this Rumble was so amazing, just to say. Um, you know, you got the Bulldog, Shawn Michaels, Kerry Von Eric, Texas Tornado, Ric Flair, Big Boss Man, and so on and so forth, right? Um, they both put over Ray, the Big Boss Man, for being a big man that could work. Piper was then out next with Flair, and he says that he was 42 during his match. Um, the crowd loses it for Piper, and then we cut towards the end of the Savage getting tossed. Randy Savage, another talent there. And then that leaves Hogan, Flair, and Sid in the ring. Flair wins when Hogan... It goes to handshake Sid for eliminating him and says, good job. And then he, Hogan kind of pulls a heel move and pulls Sid out while Flair flips him and ends up basically winning the whole thing. And this was the first uh, Royal Rumble ever where the title was on the line. So Flair became WWE champion for the first time that night as well. Flair says he didn't get tired during the match at all. Austin asked Flair if he liked working Rumbles. Flair says everyone calls it a great match and he agrees it is for a Rumble. 
but he brings up the point that you know was made earlier about star power and says that there are 20 guys in the match and you know that are all in the hall of fame now and austin was going to bring that up as well he said uh flair says so it's harder now because there's only like 10 guys in the battle royal that actually mean anything nowadays and there's just a bunch of filler right so it's a little harder easier to make a prediction and stuff and kind of not swerve the fans um it was good they showed the flair promo after the rumble so they went into that and uh, this is one of the most iconic rumbles i remember in the history i was like wow i still watch it to this day and this emotional rick flair promo right and it was just perfect you had mr perfect you had rick flair giving a an insane off the script promo you had bobby the brain he knew one of the greatest managers there and you got mean gene oakland um being very serious in a shoot um, and yelling at a stagehand to put the cigarette out. And he just yelled at him right in the middle of Flair's uh, speech. So it was just, Flair was laughing about that. But at that point he said, yeah, we went out and had 12 martinis after the show. So um, Flair says that he was using time to stick. uh, He was using this time to really stick it to WCW because they did him wrong when he left. He was ready to go there, there day one there. And his conf- and he was, you know, he had all of his confidence. And Austin asked about the tear in my eye line from this promo. And Flair says it wasn't rehearsed. It just came to him. And it was like, and I said, with a tear in my eye, he was in the big time now. And he brings up the NWA was that at one point. And that stopped when Vince McMahon took over the world. Flair considered himself the best wrestler in the world at the time. And he had in his mindset to be WWF champion someday. Austin and Flair both agreed that the business is a work, but they took their spot as a shoot. Um, Austin brings up Perfect, Heenan, and Gene again being in that clip and how they're no longer with us at all. And Flair calls Heenan the greatest manager of all time. Um, he also brings up Heenan as a worker in his day that you know while he couldn't work an hour, he could also put on an exciting show. You know, we kind of transitioned from here to another um, superstar that is not with us anymore. Kerry Von Erich, the Texas Tornado. Kerry Von Erich is discussed, and Flair calls him a nice kid, and he's sorely missed. He names the five stars that were the most over that he ever faced in his career, and here they are. Stone Cold Steve Austin, Hollywood, or excuse me, Hollywood Hulk Hogan, or Hulk Hogan, Kerry Von Erich, Texas Tornado, Dusty Rhodes, and Ricky Morton in the Carolinas. Um, he talks about rubbing Morton's face in concrete and the heat from the teenage girls that he got for that was insane. The crowds were on fire and they nearly caused a riot. Um, Austin talks about the high pop that the rock and roll would get from the women. And they were hot in the Carolinas, the rock and roll express. From there, we go to WrestleMania eight, the topic that everybody wants to talk about and including yours. Truly. I always wondered as a kid, I was like, what happened? Why did we not get Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair at WrestleMania 8? Instead, we got Psycho Sid and Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair and Macho Man Randy Savage, which was a great feud over Liz. And I felt like that was a strong feud that was really well done. Austin wanted to know why Flair versus Hogan didn't happen. Flair says he doesn't really know and he never asked. He thinks Vince had different ideas and Hogan was getting ready to leave. And he talked about working with Randy and dropping the belt to him. And he says that, you know, that was the last that we really saw of Liz and the WWE as 
Randy was in a bad way, you know. Um, he did the run with him, and then Warrior dropped him on his head. And then so Vince was asked um, him to drop the belt to Brett then at that point, right? So um, when this basically all got finished up, and he's saying the greatest year and a half ever, um, he worked with Hogan. When it was all said and done, he got to work with Hogan, Piper, Savage, Perfect, Brett, and even a little bit of The Undertaker. He had fun in the 80s, you know, in the WWF days. And he said he had a lot of fun with The Undertaker and getting to know him. Um, he says that, you know, he did lose four Rolex watches when they went out at night. Um, yeah, that was a good run for Rick, right? And I think it was a nice, healthy break before he went back to his days of WCW. And we did get Hogan versus Flair in WCW actually quite a few times. So we got that whole feud over there. But it was a missed opportunity for WWE. But as fans, I'm so happy that we got it. So the other thing is we got Sting versus Flair. We get we start talking a little bit about that. And Austin moves to Sting and says that Flair is the one that got Sting over. Flair says that he had something to do with it, but people don't give Sting enough credit. Flair says that Sting is not an aggressive guy at all and calls him the nicest guy in the world. He fully trusts, you know, Flair fully trust him in that match. At, um, they had a Clash of Champions match. And he says it's very hard to go 55 minutes, but he did it. And he did it with him. He said, we see the closeness of that match and a star was born. Flair can't say enough good things about Sting in this segment. Flair says that he has wrestled Sting nearly as many times as he's wrestled Steamboat and they were all great. He put Sting over as being a great guy and is happy where he is in his life. He can't think of a lot of guys that are that happy in the post-life of wrestling. And you know what? I'm happy for that and good for Sting. He did it completely his way. I do think of Sting versus Flair as one of the most iconic faces of WCW history and one of the great rivalries of all time. From there, we shift a little bit. We get a little out of wrestling into some lifestyle. Uh, Flair talks a little bit about his past lifestyle and how he made a lot of bad choices. But they were all his. He credits Wendy, his current wife, for helping bring him back and then puts over what Vince handed him a check before a Saudi Arabia show. And that was a weird transition. But at this point, Flair likes to go off the bid in this case. And he points that he starts talking about being rich and then being poor and then being back to rich again. He talks about the IRS a little bit when he got into some trouble there and how, and how he uh, ended up paying uh, was about $1.5 million. Um, Austin asked Rick if he would change anything. And Rick says, uh, the only thing he would do differently is he was way too wild. Uh, he didn't want people to admire what he did instead about wonder about how that was even possible. Uh, he talked about having to pay alimony to three different women and that he also owed Vince over $800,000 and he was able to pay him back. And now he's even Steven and back to making money. So, he jokes that he's still in demand, but, you know, Steve Austin, not Steve Austin type demand. Uh, and Austin just kind of gives a good laugh. So we go on to the next topic. So we get back on track and we talk about WrestleMania X8. You guys might know it as WrestleMania 18. That's what I will forever call it. But WrestleMania X8, um, Flair says that The Undertaker made him. He says that Harley made him in 1983 and the Taker brought him back to life when he was at his lowest self-confidence part of his life. And Triple H told him that the Undertaker picked him for the match at Mania and Flair says he had a hard time fitting in 
when he came back in 2002. He was 20 years older than any than everyone else, and that the plan was for him just to show up and be general manager. And he, you know, someone didn't show up to a show. He said there was a time where someone didn't show up to a show, and he went from being GM and to having to wrestle Brock Lesnar because <clears throat> somebody wouldn't. And he looked right at Austin, and Austin just kind of laughed, and he says, "Well, it was, you know, it always comes back to that, right?" And Austin says. Uh, this was the show that Austin actually walked out on, right? So then Flair had to kind of take the spot. But Austin brings up that they wanted him to lose to Brock for no reason, and he just thought that they you know, were fucking with him at first and testing him. And then he knows that he, um, he handed it, handled it the wrong way, and Flair says that he didn't handle it wrong. And Austin says that he should have shown up and told Vince it wasn't going to happen, honestly, um, instead of just flying back home. So back to Taker. They both agree uh, that the gimmick is the greatest of all time. Flair says that he was in shock when he got to the the news that he didn't know <clears throat> how he was going to be able to pull this match off with him. But uh, it definitely made it work, right? And they did a lot of flips in the corner, some boots. Um, and then even Iron Anderson comes in and hits a hell of a spine buster, right? And so they talk about, you know, the physique of Flair. And Flair wishes how he was a little more jacked at 52 um, but he says he was 55 here, so he wishes he was in a little better shape, but I don't think he disappointed. Next thing we get up, we start talking about Flair versus McMahon. So Flair goes back a few months prior to Mania, and uh, we talk about the Royal Rumble again, get, and he gets a little emotional talking about Vince telling him how this is so cool wrestling him. And Flair struggled with that as he wasn't ready, um, and he didn't think he was being ready to be able to take a match on like that. So Flair struggled with that, but he had the same reaction with Shane in Japan. And then Rick breaks down and he came across those moments and being a 71 year old man and having people like Austin calling him the greatest of all time. It's just, you know, it's very honoring and, you know, you got to respect that from, you know, this moment. And he enjoyed the match. From there, we evolve a little bit more into the podcast. We have evolution. And so what we have is Flair admits he battled with confidence issues on and off until Shawn Michaels retired him. He says that the cage match with Triple H at Taboo Tuesday got him back in the groove again. That was a great match. And then that led to Austin bringing up Evolution and that Flair says that Orton is the best worker in the business today. He knows how to work. And he says it's amazing to me that so many legends say that. And yet so many fans are having a hard time believing it. Um, perhaps, you know, maybe he's just super kicked more, right? So Flair then says that when you lose it, it's very hard to get it back. Okay, so and that's the other half of it. Orton wants um, everyone to know, or Austin wants her to know what advice he was giving Orton and Batista. He says that Orton would go home and talk to his dad for that advice and flair wrestled his dad and he knew he was giving him advice from a different era he calls orton and dave great guys and he says that run you know kind of helped him more or less he jokes about how he needed a third hall of fame ring because of uh, he's got one for the four horsemen and one for himself but he doesn't know if evolution will go in or not um only time will tell so then we got our wrestlemania career threatening match which is WrestleMania 24 and the Sunshine Dome. So what we have here is Austin uh, takes us this way where Flair was retired. 
And then he says, with Shawn Michaels, you know, um, these two, you know, had a very respected match. Flair had an amazing entrance that night with fireworks, and he had a gigantic robe. Um, It was very, you know, flamboyant and reminiscent of Ric Flair earlier in his career, right? So they did it right. Um, Shawn told him, you know, Flair tried to say that he wanted to say something. Shawn told him to shut up. Flair puts Shawn over for having a match with himself and that night and that um wasn't the first time because he is that great Shawn michaels could have a match with himself and it would look good um austin also says that he knows when flair is calling a match and he wants to know what it was like when the younger guy was calling the match flair said it took 15 minutes to settle in and he wondered um how good it could have been if he was on his own game but flair again goes back to losing self-confidence and how hard it is and it wasn't about everyday life but about getting in the ring at a 59 year old he was getting the reaction like no other and he says that it was a three-day gig with the hall of fame mania and then the raw after mania and they you know the show ended with uh one of the most saddest moments when Shawn michaels looked at him before the sweet chin music kick and he whispered to rick flair i'm sorry i love you and then he kicked him into retirement um, with Sweet Chen music. So still, awesome. Flair um, says that he was overwhelmed by the crowd. And that well, after that, one, two, three, he felt like the luckiest guy in the world. They showed Flair coming back through the curtain and getting a standing ovation. And tears are flowing down him. And man, um, now someone is, you know, he, he said, just someone's cutting onions, right? But he... Um, definitely was emotional. Um, Dusty Rhodes was hugging Flair. Uh, Flair, you know, was just getting emotional all over, and he was gut-checked. But this was his last match, and they sent him out with class, and they sent him out with dignity the way it should have done, and it was amazing. So kudos to WWE for getting that right at WrestleMania 24 for the Nature Boy. But wait, there was more. There's an epilogue to this Ric Flair story. So uh, there was a TNA Impact Wrestling run where Ric Flair did go to TNA Impact Wrestling. Um, Austin asked about his TNA run, and Flair says that he needed money and it was fun. Um, he was there at 3 p.m., and he was at the bar by 7. He hated working for Bischoff again, though he says he needed it um, to apologize to Vince for doing it. He need, uh, just needed the money and just, you know, like being with the boys, really. Um, they both talked exit strategy, and Flair brings up hearing and having a brand five years ago. You know, he wishes he had a manager who knew social media years ago. And he says, you know, it'd be, it was very irresponsible and lazy. And now has it has someone, you know, he would have had somebody to take care of that. He puts Austin over for being always responsible. And Austin says that, you know, he had a period where he ran hard and rough as well. So um, we get a little bit of that. Not much on the TNA Impact Wrestling side of the thing, but they definitely, you know, did touch on it a little bit and... That was it. All right. Well, just when we think we're kind of done, we get back a little bit. Um, we go backwards, and we go back to the airplane crash that we've heard. If you've watched any of the other Ric Flair DVDs, check it out. Um, Ric Flair survived a very terrible airplane crash very early in his career, and he was on the same plane with Ric Flair and Johnny Valentine, Tim Woods, David Crockett, Bob Bruggers, and then John Michael Farkser. So what happens is... Um, we go back to this, and he says how the plane crash kind of made him 
reinvent his wrestling style and in a weird way and it scared him you know in life and so that was very traumatic but then he said well i'm going to change my style of wrestling to be a little bit more safer in the ring all right we got promos and lots of promos so we talk about promos austin before we start wrapping up more things austin wants to bring up the fact of how we talk about promos that have influenced flair's style flair says that he was living the life and we get another classic from 1985 where he breaks about his $800 shoes, lizard shoes, and a limo, and 25 girls dying to get in with him. And woo, classic. Uh, Flair says that he had a great guy like Dusty Rose to work off of uh, to try to outdo. He says that Austin had the same thing with The Rock early in his career, and they kind of talk back and forth there. Flair says that he did the ESPN 30 for 30 and that he was sell, really selling the booze and women while Hogan was selling vitamins and milk. So that was the yin and yang to these two great rivalries. We talked favorite eras. Um, Flair naturally says the 80s and the NWA, and he puts over all kinds of stuff in there. And his you could talk that his best opponents and matches were the Four Horsemen-related ones, Dusty Rhodes, the Road Warriors, etc. Wow, the WWE had Hogan, and it didn't matter what else they had when you had Hawk Hogan. So he says that the guys with Hogan would just work as normal and do their gimmick. So he gives an example of the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, was a great worker, but all he had to do was kind of throw cash around, and that was his gimmick, and toss money and do his manacle laugh. Everybody's got a price, right? And that was good enough to wrestle Hogan. So that was one of the differences from the entertainment world that was becoming WWE and the WCW wrestling world. And speaking in that world, Austin asks his favorite program player um, of all time. And he says Dusty for a lot of reasons. They show a black and white photo of them. And then Austin says, you know, it smells and looks like pro wrestling. Um, and Dusty definitely knew pro wrestling, and these two knew how to build a face-heel feud. Um, and he, he said when Dusty bled, he bled like a stuffed pig. And then when, you know, Flair bled, we all know what that looks like. So they just, you know, kind of rolled their eyes at each other. But these two definitely had the it factor. Then we get a little fun. We get some montages of woos, including a woo off with angle on raw and austin brings up the moment when flair um, would also rip off his clothes while cutting a promo and doing another woo in the ring in his underwear uh, that was a classic moment back in wcw flair if he knew it would last this long he he would bring up and getting it from uh jerry lee lewis originally right so he said he hasn't stopped since 19 19- 74 so it was the woo goodness gracious great balls of fire you know that's kind of where he got the woo from we then get into the next generation and that is charlotte flair right so um the legacy of rick flair and the rise of charlotte um we spent some time here talking about charlotte flair saying um her winning the divas title and how she's elevating herself into the WWE through NXT. And I will say this, when I first seen Charlotte in NXT, I was very wrong. I said, oh, here's a lady trying to get a name off of her world-famous daddy. She's not that good. And then I watched her the next week, guys, and Charlotte Flair was really good. And she got so good in one week, and I was like, wow. And then she got even better the following week. And I went, and I would publicly admit here, I was very wrong 
about Charlotte Flair, and I do apologize to the Flair family because I got it very wrong at first glance. And um, she does have the advantages of her father in the business, but you know what? This girl works hard, and she is also a pedigree and knows the business and has evolved now. Uh, so the evolution of Charlotte Flair has kicked in. Um, he brings up the Rock's daughter here a little bit and talks about how that's going to be a little tough for her too. But basically, these guys talk about what it's like for Charlotte to be in there. So you know, Charlotte and Flair, you know, they put over the top for the five about five years now, and it's a long run. Um, he feels like he's going to be in the best match at Mania with Rhea Ripley. So Austin feels um, her career can stand on its own without you know Nature Boy Ric Flair, but it definitely didn't hurt to have her dad there. I've enjoyed seeing her dad and her kind of just being able to have this time together while they worked as a heel and a face, and then his he was managing her a little bit. And, you know, just let's pause wrestling for a second. Charlotte's going to get a moment, and then unfortunately in life, there will may come a time where the Nature Boy will not be with us anymore, okay? And that will be a sad day for wrestling. But I want Charlotte to live in the now and say, I got to work with my dad at what he loved about his life and what he did to put food on the table for us kids. And I got to see my father's world and what he loved so much when he wasn't away from us. And I get to go tell my siblings that and my mother that. And so I feel like Charlotte um, should and is really embracing this great opportunity, even if she don't realize what it is right now. She will grow up and she will learn to appreciate what this is with her father. So I'm happy for both of them. And guys, we get into our final thoughts on this podcast. So Austin goes back to Flair being a part of the pop culture. And then he kind of gets into how Flair feels about his legacy. Flair says that he thinks about it quite a time and quite a bit. And he wants to be remembered as for the good things overall. He never did anything illegal, and he never did any drugs, and he was really wild. So um, he could have done more for his family, and he knows that. But he now doesn't want to be remembered as the greatest wrestler of all time. Um, However, he does want to be known as the guy that influenced Shawn Michaels in Austin, Triple H, and even guys like The Miz. So he just wants to be the positive spin on things of what he did. Um, Flair brings up the night in Greenville when he wrestled Triple H and they had the Flair Appreciation Night right after Raw. I think it's on uh, Flair's DVD. And Flair says that he went, um, at one point he was to, he was just admiring Austin and here he was pouring himself some beers and he was like, it was like a wake up call and it really meant that there was something with these guys and that this is how, you know, he wanted to be remembered. So, They toast each other, and that closes the show and ends this episode of The Broken Skull Sessions, episode six, featuring Ric Flair. So here's my final thoughts, guys. Um, This was a long one. There's a lot of stories. There's a lot of jumping around back and forth, and if that bothers you, and, you know, it's about an hour and a half of it, and, you know, about an hour and 40 minutes this time around, and if that bothered you, mm, I would stick here with my podcast, and I would just give you those highlights, but if anything that you see here on my show today intrigued you with my highlights and delights, and it's the podcast of the podcast, then I would go ahead 
And I would go ahead and invest in WWP Cock Network and watch the whole thing. And you can see it for yourself. But I felt like we did a pretty good job here. Um, but you guys can tell me how you know we did. And you can tell me that by like, sharing, and subscribing. And so that is going to be it for us today. So again, like, share, subscribe. Tell me how I did. And it's not goodbye. It's game over.